If you understand what you have and where it is, how it's licensed, who's allowed it, who's the owner, and whatever else, every single problem that you will encounter in the future can be built upon that source of truth. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking cybersecurity. I have with me Thomas Knowles, Head of Security Operations at ClearBank. Now, the reason why I'm asked, I've asked him to come on the podcast is because we met at the Cyber Innovation Challenge Showcase from the City of London Police. And I heard him speak some serious wisdom on the panels that he was on, but also he was part of the team that was helping the startups that were collaborating with the City of London Police on how to best surface crime when it happens. And one of the things that really caught my attention was how complicated this problem is. First of all, one thing that had never dawned on me was that a lot of the the cybercrime that happens in the UK is external to the UK. And as a consequence of that, makes it really damn hard for the police to get involved. So I didn't realize how much their hands were tied when it came to cybercrime. But then the other thing was, how do you, as an organization, help the police or help um, other government organizations with the resolution and tracking and, and data management of some of these crimes? So that's the backdrop upon which I met Thomas, and we're going to learn a little bit more about all of that today. So welcome, Thomas. Thank you very much for having me. So let's go straight into your background, because I always find that really fascinating about people, how they ended up doing what they do. So I I obviously saw that you had a a pretty good long career in cybersecurity, but tell us about, first of all, what you studied in college, and then what was that first job after graduation? So... I think probably my first real step into cybersecurity was probably quite a few years before that. And that was with my younger brother, actually. He figured out a way of, uh, he was playing a game online and he realized that like the, the game wasn't validating some of the inputs that you were sending it from the client to the server so that he could pretty much cheat and do whatever he wanted with it and you know I was probably only about like 14 15 at the time but that's the thing that initially got my interest and then at university there wasn't really so many like cyber security things so I got into more the open source and software development side as opposed to any kind of really structured cyber security elements and you know about how software was made and how we developed it and essentially the evolution of how software is built. So wrote a couple of papers for the IEEE about software modularity and whatnot. And I was pretty much going to go either into academics or some kind of software development career, I would imagine. And then when I graduated, 2008 happens, and then everything was in the toilet for that particular period of time. Nobody was hiring. I couldn't find a job or whatsoever. So I was building software, not security software, just little things here and there. I I had the original Google phone. I was building little tracking applications so I could map where I was going through the world and everything like that. And then from all of that kind of experience, I got a message online about whether or not I'd be interested in applying for a particular pre-sales role with a security lens. 
for a, a product called Splunk, which obviously has just recently been acquired by uh, Cisco. That was probably my like actual first proper career into it. And that was for a company called Satisnet, which I believe has now been recently acquired by a company called Gamma Communications. And that involved me pretty much going around and interacting with various different organizations. Some of it was on the selling side. Some of it was on the consultancy side of just making sure that they have the appropriate amount of visibility for their IT infrastructures, their assets and whatnot, and then how they can respond to particular threats. After that, I think I went over to the Royal Bank of Scotland as a consultant, but that they were my only real client that I had to actually engage with. And that was a very similar thing where I was helping and consulting on their SOC, so the Security Operations Center. Again, various amounts of detection and threat and stuff like that that they need to obviously operate and make sure that they are keeping the assets safe. After that, I think I went to uh, O2. O2 was a telecom, now recently been acquired by Virgin Media or Liberty Capital or kind of something like that. And I was there for three years where I ended up running the detection and response team within there. I mean, I know lots of things have shifted now there, but so I was there for a while, just pretty much working on automations and response techniques and detections and standardization. I was given a lot of leeway, so I was able to follow some of the things that I was interested in and whatnot. And then finally, after that, I was a contractor for a while, like a consultant. So I went to various different organizations after that. So we're talking like the London Clearinghouse, Commentary Building Society, Sainsbury's, Trainline all of those pretty much going in and either helping on a technical implementation level or process levels or whatever else to improve how they can either detect or respond to particular threats. And then ClearBank was my actual last contract before I actually went permanent. And that was at the beginning of January, 2020. And then obviously COVID hit and they were like, hey, Tom, do you, do you want to go permanent? And I was like, I actually like it here. So yeah, I think I will make a change now because it's one of those where, you know, there's a bit of uncertainty in the world and also the fact that I like working here. So I'm pretty much just here now at the head of security operations at Clearbank. Nice. All right. Well, that's a good summary of where you got to. And clearly you've seen a lot. And so in the spirit of you seeing a lot, putting aside any Clearbank stories leading up to Clearbank, just give us for the listeners a couple of oh shit moments in your career where you're like where you either were responsible and something happened and you're like oh shit what do I do and then you obviously figure it out or where something went cataclysmically wrong and, and maybe you weren't able to figure it out but maybe just to give a, a, a sense for the listener who isn't in the security world what an oh shit moment looks like for you I've probably got two examples if you know what I mean one is me and probably I would imagine the majority of either founders or people who work within small organizations can relate to. So, and then the other one is probably got more of a cybersecurity lens. So the first one is that I remember that when I was working at O2, we have a vulnerability assessment tool, right? So we were using this thing called Qualys. And what Qualys does is that it would take a look externally at all your assets and then determine whether or not it's vulnerable to any kind of like attacks or exploits or whatever else. And, you know, I was still relatively young in the game and process was a bit more laissez-faire, I would say, with process that it used to be. 
And I remember that I was applying a bunch of configuration to these scanning things. And I was hitting the, I think it was the pay-as-you-go like service or something like that within the environment. And then all of a sudden, the pay-as-you-go system shuts down and nobody in the UK could top up the pay-as-you-go mobiles anymore. And it turned out that there was a, an issue with one of the open ports like long ago where it would just listen and then suck in any information that you sent to it. So when my thing was scanning it, all of a sudden the system was ingesting all of that particular type of information and then corrupting the table. And then I managed to take it down. Obviously that's bad practice from just an operating perspective for go to, but at the same time, it's one of those where there was probably a lack of understanding the scope and some of the risks of the assets, which most people do when then they're trying to move as quickly as possible with and deploying these particular types of solutions. And that was a big oh shit moment because all of a sudden I am responsible for probably taking down more than what I get paid for a couple of years for that. So that's been a uh, Quite an interesting uh, thing. On the other side, on the cyber lens, I mean, there have been a couple. I've been quite lucky in regards to the fact that most of the organizations that I've worked at has been quite resilient. But I've had a, a couple in my actual experience. So one we've had where you'll go through the normal process when you're in a particular relatively mature organization where you'll have all your detection suites and whatever else. And there's a very common thing known as analyst burnout and detection fatigue and whatnot. And then obviously people can get sloppy. And I remember that we were going through these particular alerts and one of them like looked a bit suspicious, but not completely out of the ordinary where there was an authentication against a, a particular uh, asset. And we were like, oh, well, okay, what's that? And then you have to then look holistically back at like, it's not just about the cyber stuff. It's about how the organization operates and what are the expected behaviors more than anything. So we have a look at this account and I can see that it's authenticating against one of these particular systems and it, it's got quite a few failed and whatnot. And I'm like, all right, now I'll have a look at the actual user and we go, Oh, that user's only been around for a couple of weeks and he wouldn't have those particular things. And then we go, okay, that's interesting. And then we take a, a little bit of a deep diver on it. Uh, and all of a sudden we can see the fact that it's not them authenticating against that particular thing using the standard technology. All of a sudden there's an executable that is running, which is actually performing those particular actions. So you're like, all right, this is a, a big flag right from the get-go. So then we go, okay, where has that came from? Who's downloaded it? What this person is doing? What access that they've got? And then once you've got enough information, it's one of those things where you've got to choose the, the difference between either understanding the risk and the scope of either letting it roll a little bit so you can get more information uh, about what they're doing, their tool sets, their exfiltration methods, et cetera, et cetera or you shut them down straight away. And it, it is one of these balancing acts you need to do with the assigning risk to particular security incidents, because obviously on this, on the one hand, you want to be able to sure, make sure that you can protect the organization and everything that's going on there. You want to protect its data, its customers, its operational resilience, blah, 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 blah. And at the same time, you want to get them out as quick as possible. But 
you sort of need to have some of that visibility within the organization to get a good understanding to make sure that they haven't established any kind of persistence and whatnot. Now, luckily, we caught it quite early, so we could then mostly shut it down, but we leave a slight window open on purpose. So what we'll do is we'll soft we'll soft isolate the devices so they can't operate on the laptop and whatnot, but then all the walls start slowly closing in, if you get what I mean, like their accesses gets removed on X, Y, and Z, but not enough to trigger them, but enough of them to think that the, everything's still okay whilst it's not okay and then evaluating afterwards what things have been lost what things have potentially been touched or corrupted what things have just been affected by those particular things and it is an incredibly stressful time i mean we go through various different red teams as well with like professional organizations like netitude and ncc and whatever else where they are in some areas the equivalent of state attackers and being able to track those down are very difficult because it's one of those things where they use a lot of the tooling which a particular nation state might actually have access to and they'll have like agreed patterns and whatever else of activity so they can be quite quiet when they fall onto the endpoints this makes it very difficult but so yeah, what, I mean, what ended up happening there was it was it a new employee that was doing something what was the conclusion you came to from that last attack it was somebody who had been essentially fished from, uh, and I can get back onto why there are now protections for this stuff, but before it was literally somebody who just got fished and convinced to go and download some particular piece of software. You know, you have particular phishing techniques which allow you to, you click on that and it has a sense of urgency of you must perform X, Y, and Z, I need this. Don't go download this like Teams viewer or whatever else that we require, and then we'll start up the next part of the conversation. And then all of a sudden, a dropper comes down or, or, or a payload on, on, onto the machine. And then normally you're probably not going to get the best of the best that are actually doing those. What happens in those particular types of attacks is that, or, you know, like criminal organized groups will go and actually go out and they'll have they'll buy access to particular systems so you'll have a certain group of people that get initial access to organizations like clear bank or seed camp or, or whatever else and then they'll sell that access to other organizations so they downloaded it like a while ago and then it just lay dormant apart from occasionally beaconing out and then once they i believe they probably sold that access and then it went out to go and interact with other particular services yeah, it's, it's scary when you think about it that way, right? That you're a pawn in somebody else's game and it's just an interim step for something. But maybe yeah, with, real that, with that as a backdrop, maybe let's go into just general cybersecurity. We can talk about it in, in the role of ClearBank or not, doesn't really matter. But I wanted to cover a few things, maybe just for those that are listening that are either founders who are thinking about their first stance in security but just walk us through the, the basics of where the industry is at the moment in terms of the challenges that it faces with cloud computing, SaaS products. You wrote a blog post recently about low-code, no-code and the challenges that presents in the organization. Just generally there, I'm, I'm excluding from that AI. I want to get to that as a separate point. But just walk us through kind of right now the, the challenges that every startup faces when thinking about security from the first moment, things that they should get in terms of qualifications things that they should be considering and designing for early days, and then the challenges that the industry has at the moment. Sure. So if I was to go in 
as a first security hire anyway, or looking at it from that perspective, so that's the perspective that I can actually properly see. The first thing is, and it is always the bedrock of any kind of security platform, is always asset management. So if you don't know what you uh, have, then how are you expected to actually secure it, right? So you need to understand what are some of the assets that you've currently got. And in today's world, that's a lot easier. You know, when conventionally people had to go to a data center and touch that piece of tin, it was a lot harder to enumerate that kind of thing. When now, obviously, that we have cloud-based tools, you've got the majority of your asset management built into the cloud console or the APIs. Or, and most people now don't run traditional AD. They run like an identity provider like Okta or they'll use Azure AD or Entra ID, as it's called now, or, or, or what have you, or the equivalent of AWS. But those things... They need to be managed all the time, essentially, because you need to understand not only what you have, but also what the controls are around. And those things are very easy to be able to pull out via the APIs nowadays. Like the cloud has provided us levels of abstraction to, you know, you you just literally instantiate another compute resource or a service bus or a Redis instance or whatever else. And then on top of that, though, we have then decided to add levels of complexity as we've wanted to define our resources and do the multi-regions and whatever else, which has made it actually quite difficult to secure on the other side of that. So we've taken some of the problems away somewhere and then we've added abstraction layer after abstraction layer to make it actually quite difficult. But the first thing, obviously, is to look at your asset management. After that, it tends to be you want to spend a bit of time defining what your processes are. So you want things like an information security policy. You want a series of like policies and processes about what should be the outcome of particular things, right? So we shouldn't have X, Y, Z resources sat out on the internet. We shouldn't have people just downloading software willy-nilly and then interacting with it in a secure environment or, or whatnot. You need that sort of chain of custody of the way that we interact with particular elements. And then after that, there are just some very obvious basic things. So uh, things like just getting your antivirus in place, making sure that you have some kind of phishing and detection controls, making sure that if you are building software, that you are at least trying to get that securely built and scanning for obvious big holes and errors. Um, those kind of things are realistically some of the bread and butter of what we want, because ultimately companies which are small at the moment and developing are going to be more focusing on the protection side of cybersecurity instead of the detection and response. You know, it's easier to initially protect yourself than detect it and respond to it because detection and response takes a lot more resource to do within the organization. And it takes a, a lot more humans that they may have either budget or capability to get hold of. So making sure that the way that they are building that particular software is understood, is documented, and then where you can lock it down at the beginning and use some of the best practices makes your life easier. And the reason why I say that is because when organizations build their applications or what have you in the cloud or in data centers or whatnot, what is usually a 
tactical solution to get something working very quickly becomes the official strategic solution because it is too difficult to move after that. So trying to get that right and embedded at the beginning is one of the hardest challenges because the time that you saved at the beginning when you're implementing something in a probably less optimized way is then probably magnitudes greater for when you actually have to try and fix it when you realize this is actually a not particularly good way and we, we're exposing x y and z or this very important surface is allowed to talk to all of these particular things and it shouldn't be that way and to move it we have to then shut everything down and segment it and do everything else when you could have spent 15 lines of code to define its own area before but it worked, so forget about it. But that's a lot of what happens within organizations is, particularly as it's growing, is that you are continuously paying the price for the security technical debt that you actually implemented right at the beginning just to go get the minimum viable product out. It's a very interesting one, to be honest. So if we take that advice and we try to structure it, the way that you've enumerated it requires some level of knowledge to do it yeah. this way. Alternatively, if you're coming from the product development side of the world and you're a CEO, is, is it easier to just look at a SOC 2 certification, for example, and or others on the device side, you know, cyber essentials on the cloud side and data side, SOC 2? Walk us through what you think would be good frameworks for people to just jump into quickly that aren't yeah. really onerous, but that provide some structure to what you just described? So... There are a couple actually, which, and some of them are technically like free, like, so you have to pay for to get access to ISO 27001 framework. It's quite useful, but you have to pay for it. The PCI DSS one is equally as fine, and you can just pull that directly from the internet, and that will give you the same kind of, these things must be segmented, you must have these endpoint controls, you must be able to have visibility and logging on X, Y, and Z, and it's just broken down into 12 different domains, essentially, to provide you some of the largely holistic advice of how you should be able to manage it. There is the recent NIST, I think it's like a security posture one, which is a breakdown of the SP800, but it's more of a broader, broader level that you could use as well. Uh, again, a smaller framework, only a couple of pages of kind of things that you should take into consideration when either managing or building out solutions. I mean, those two will probably be the, the main ones that I would look at if you're doing it on a bit of a shoestring budget. Okay. If you're listening, guys, on the show notes, we'll add links to some of these so that you can follow through this point as you start going through this process. Now, Thomas, when, when you look at a, a small team, let's say of 10 people, maybe 50% of them are developers, walk us through that first security-specific hire. Like, first of all, how do you hire somebody with your experience? Because you're not looking for somebody who's going to build a nice UI on an existing product or something else. It's, it's somebody who's got a very different mindset, maybe a different technical ability, and maybe isn't at the same technical level as some of the developers that are in the team, but isn't looking to be involved in that level. Just give us a sense for what it is that people should look for when hiring and, and moving away from just doing this as a sort of following the format from some certification they just downloaded. Good, yeah. So ultimately, you want somebody who is entrepreneurial, 
right? Because at the end of the day, they are introducing a brand new concept and function within the organization. And you're going to have either founders or product owners or whatnot, which, you know, that isn't aligned with what they actually need. Sure, security is obviously important, but if they've got the thing between, I can make it slightly less secure or ship it, uh, or I'm going to have to wait and it'll be secure, then, you know, sometimes people might choose one or the other. But essentially, you need somebody quite entrepreneurial. Normally, I would suggest that for a small organization that you would uh, get a technical hire as opposed to a a more holistic, like CISO kind of level. Uh, The reason why I say that is because you need essentially an agent of change and the people that can interact with the people who are managing the environment, you know, the developers and the infrastructure guys and and what have you, those are the ones that are going to be essentially paying some of the costs, but also get some of the benefit from what is being implemented within on the security space. So they need to be quite technically savvy and, and definitely entrepreneurial. They probably need to have some exposure with areas of the tooling that you're, you're building with. I wouldn't necessarily say that they have to be a developer, but experience if like you're building an AWS, then that's obviously an important thing. Or sure, uh, if they've got some kind of, if you're a Windows shop or a Mac shop or whatever else, making sure that they've got some proper experience on that. And then probably I would imagine at least a good couple of years worth of either working in a DevSecOps function or a security operations function. So those who have had a couple of years to see how those particular areas have have operated and the actual known kind of threats. I mean, you need to have somebody who understands that if you expose X, Y, and Z, or if this isn't particularly configured well, that that those are the issues that are coming on. But it's one of those. You could technically and do what lots of organizations do as well, is that you'll have one security person initially. And then if the organization is five or 10 people, you can allocate either some of the resources like the developers or the platform engineers or whatever else to be security champions, right? So you get that hook into the stakeholders of the business and the ones that integrate the changes and make those particular things and then make them part of a a pseudo security team. So you can then have a kind of a consortium of minds on that to then push that particular culture or idea or change that you want. But realistically you need a semi-technical person to be part of that i don't think they need to be too technical but they they need to be technical enough to be able to help implement and then validate the changes that are happening within they basically cracking an open a wedge open within the devops of the organization and then having security in there and then making that part of the cycle of development from that point onwards 100 and that's how a lot of the organizations that I have seen or some of my circle of friends who were also in the industry have operated. The the majority of the first hires tend to be technical in nature. And then if they are entrepreneurial and they grow within the organization, they tend to then grow within their particular role. But it's one of those where it's just, if you work and operating at a too high capacity, 
then all you're doing is pushing down policy and process, but you have no real way of validating it outside of spending money to a consultancy or a penetration testing firm to validate that those actual changes have happened. Yeah, fair enough. I'm going to, again, keep pushing the AI bucket down the road because I really want to get to that after we've covered a few additional things. But I wanted to now shift focus a little back to ClearBank and where you are today and some of the challenges that the financial industries face specifically, because it is a unique industry in the sense that it has money going through it. And that just makes it a big honeypot of sorts, right? It makes it really yeah. attractive. And so I wanted to start off with, first of all, the threats that you guys have. I'm, I'm curious as to where you from not from a what you think you will have as a worst case scenario, but from like a day to day, how it is that the reality of threats come through. And I'm just going to take a guess and you correct me if I'm, this is like a multiple choice question. I would say that insider threats are probably your number one challenge. And then I would say number two is fraud from external parties within the transactions or attempted fraud. Then from there, I would probably say organized crime groups, maybe like uh, phishing attacks and stuff like that. And then the last one, state. I don't know if I got that order right, but I'd love to hear what are the industry risks at the moment for finance and how are you addressing? You're 100% correct, I think, in the way that you've actually structured that. So insider risk is definitely the biggest as organizations grow. And people either become, you know, a little disconnected or they're upset with the organization or they get an offer from somebody on the internet saying, hey, you know, do you want to make a quick 30K or something like that? You know, we can help you out with that. On the other side of that, they can do it because they might be working for organized crime groups as well. So we could have an instance where they go, okay, let's have a look and see who are our main retail customers that we have and how much money that you've got and then we can just call them up and you know work on the fact that we know all of these particular elements about that particular customer so you can sort of pretend a little better than your average scammer and send that and then call them up and say hey you know we're x y and z we're the bank you have this amount of money you have this amount of information you did x y and z transaction we need to validate something and your money is no longer safe, send it over here. Those kind of things are, uh, we are very conscious of that because of the fact that insider risk and data exposure and whatnot is very, very important, particularly when you're the custodian for a large amount of money, you get a lot of attention. And insider risk is one of those things where a enormous amount of probably emphasis over the last 10 years has been put on insider risk within the financial organizations. Maybe it was higher before. I wasn't around then. But it, it, it's one of those where as you grow and as organizations develop their processes or they get a little bit sloppy and, you know, people inherit permissions and whatever else to access things, it becomes a big problem. And identity and access management and tracking who's doing what is an enormous benefit to us. It's a weird one, but it's very, very difficult to understand what is normal activity and what is malicious activity, if you know what I mean. And yeah. those things can take a lot of time. The crime groups is very much an interesting one. And again, it's really segmented into two. You'll have, like I mentioned before, you'll have Groups that will go out and try to get initial access against things. And then after that, they will pretty much sell that particular access. 
And we get a lot of attempted accesses within our estate all the time. I'm sure even you do to a certain degree. Like majority of things come out in like phishing emails and whatnot and adding high priority. And that we also get lots of web application attacks and scanning. We get lots of phishing emails, so voice emails, and they're pretending to be from the IT support element lots of SMS, things like the leaked credentials or when websites have been scraped like LinkedIn, they'll then not just go towards your corporate identity, they'll lean into your more personal one. So you'll start getting emails from either pretending to be from an organization like ClearBank or the Bank of England or something like that, but targeting you as a person who works at that organization to your personal email address. And that happens very, very frequently, particularly with the fact that if you've been in the industry for any level, then you've got affected by the LinkedIn scrape and you probably have the same email addresses from that. From a nation state perspective and those particular APTs, most organizations won't know they're affected until they're affected, if you know what I mean. So it's a bit difficult to to say that because when you're dealing with some of the best of the best, they will just sit there quietly and very, very quietly enumerate the things that they require over a long period of time. You know, there we have, as probably defenders of the organization, hours and days and maybe up to weeks to, to investigate a particular incident and then we on to the next thing that you're dealing with. Whilst those particular types of attackers can just sit there for years and just get an understanding and a mapping of what's going on. Those are probably the scariest things that we have, because on the other side of that, with the organized crime groups, they are a lot faster now than what they used to be. So what used to be like a dwell time of four, six, eight weeks or whatever last year, and then before that, it was probably months, and then before that, it was years before they were detected. Now, they know that the detection capabilities of organizations are a lot higher with the introduction of endpoint detection systems, and we'll get onto it, but like things like AI and whatnot, that they are forced to not only improve their tradecraft, but they're also forced to move a lot quicker because they know that they have a particular time window for them to be able to get in, get their assets, hopefully escalate to the point where they could ransomware and then exfiltrate the rest of the data out. So it's a, again, it's a juggling act because it's very difficult to find or even know if you're affected by an actual state or a state actor, an APT. And the motivations that they have are probably very different. Yeah. For instance, even if you're working, if you're affected by a, I don't know, like a, a Russian or a Chinese APT and you work for a, uh, I don't know, like a cryptocurrency coin exchange, even though at first thought, you might think that the risk would be exfiltration of money, but their main objective might just be understanding who your customers are and where the money is going. And that is a completely different kind of motivation that we have for those particular types of actors that sometimes goes, it, it, it's looked at as a, a second priority because of the fact that it's not destructive. But it's still important because it's still data loss and 
you know, we are supposed to be the custodians of the CIA triangle, the confidential integrity and uh, availability. And that C sometimes might get lost if you're thinking about a state actor, because you're expecting destruction. And realistically, they're just after little bits of data. So it's one of those. It's very much a juggling act between what priorities we set against those. On that point, Tom, I'm curious the role that, and this brings us back to where we first met, this brings us back to the role of how much you as an organization should be sharing with your local police force or your local government in conjunction with other companies so that you have more of a visibility. Hey, by the way, you got something about a month ago. Hey, you got a month ago. Hey, we collectively got something as a month ago. And so maybe walk us through where the world is today in threat intelligence. So where where are we in cross-sharing information? So if you're a emerging fintech company and you have something weird going on, and yes, you've moved past it because nothing happened, but what's the state of the art in terms of integrating with other financial organizations, having a federated security system across the entire ecosystem and sharing it with, with the police and then having them help in threat intelligence? So at the moment, I would say that is still relatively immature, if you know what I mean. So there are lots of separate portals and lots of communication methods that you can have with authorities in regards to sharing this information, but it's quite opaque in where it goes after you actually sent the information and whether or not, you know, X, Y, Z gets communicated. There are an increasingly larger amount of communities built around financial services or whatever kind of tech or what have you to share those particular types of information. So communities have taken it upon themselves to build those particular elements out because you can either purchase or even run your own threat intelligence development or storage solutions and then provide those to some of your community members or customers. It's one of those where there is an, quite a large amount of maturity required at the moment for us to be able to automatically add context to our findings and then present them to the authorities. At the moment, it's majority of, is manual. And again, it's, it's very opaque on what actually happens. Now, the government, for at least in the UK, they have a, a thing known as the NCSC CISP portal. This is for organizations which get approved to access and, you know, you can share information there. But, you know, you are not required to log on to that. You're not required to sign up for it. It's just one of those nice things to have. So you don't know who's going to be the recipient of that particular threat intelligence information. Also, you really don't know who are the people who are actually reading it. Are you tipping off an actor who has access to that portal and now is reading it going, okay, we've just got burnt on this little bit. Let's change step a little bit. So when we need to communicate these things, it probably needs to go through an opaque channel to a certain degree. But it's just very difficult to actually get the understanding of who is actually receiving this information and that how are they actually making use out of it. Now, the majority of organizations are consumers of this particular stuff. They probably don't perform any kind of contribution back to society. They'll take feeds from either the likes of Microsoft or FSISAC, which is the 
I think that one's based in the States, but we make use out of that one or any other kind of community stuff. But there is a sort of level of barrier to entry to start getting to communicating that particular type of telemetry. Now, if you are comfortable with sending a lot of your actual internal security information up to the authorities, they'll gladly suck it up. There's the alert guard or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but it was the thing that they mentioned. Then we met the first time at the uh, City of London and that kind of stuff. So it's a difficult one because there's such a poor level of maturity for this particular area that it doesn't really extend to being able to be overly effective for what we really need at the moment. And at the moment, it's mostly... Like, is, is, the, is the implication that you're saying basically that we do need that? I mean, the, otherwise, I think one yeah. of the metaphors was that, you know, it's different when you only know your house was burgled, but then if you know everyone else's houses were burgled it sort of changes yeah. the nature of the game and who who that was that the same person was it at the same time and so is that the the evolution of cybersecurity now is it interconnected organizations it needs to be more centralized essentially just to be able to respond we can't when we work in silos to a certain degree that then causes problems because and the not only does it need to be centralized but there's elements that need to be automated as well. The sheer fact that we have more telemetry than we've ever had, and then tomorrow we're going to have more than that, and then the day after that, et cetera, and that the attacks are getting increasingly more complex as well. So being able to have the amount of users that understand that particular type of complexity is getting rarer and rarer and rarer. So where we can get that kind of stuff centralized and we can get a particular specialist to take a look at that across a holistic industry or, you know, countrywide view, then that's probably the, the only way that we can really gradually improve as an industry or as a country to ingest, to send that stuff upwards, because otherwise no single organization is going to take the, uh, the position of being the protector. Obviously, we got organizations like Microsoft and Google that do large elements of that, but they don't have the authority to help push or help alert or let people know that, that those particular actions are going. So yeah. there is an element where it's definitely needed. There's going to be more involvement from the authorities moving forward over yeah. the next you know, five, 10 years, because there's no other way that we can realistically do that. Yeah. Well, this is where I shamelessly plug one of our companies, uh, salve.com, who have pretty much the only real-time cross-border information sharing platform for financial institutions. So the, those that are listening, it's a shameless plug for a seed camp portfolio company. It doesn't solve everything, but if you're in financial and fire crime fighting, it's probably one to check out. Now let's move to AI. This one is such a hot topic because it has many different branches that we can discuss. We can discuss the role of AI in automating the role of the security operator and speeding up the, the volume of alerts and other things. There's that angle. There's the angle of it that you partially addressed in your no-code uh, blog post uh, because it allows individuals within the organization to use AI for different sorts of things so much easier than before. And then now you have all these sort of dummy things running around the organization that you don't know. Then there is the other challenges. How do you architect 
AI within an organization when you might have specialized LLMs for one part of the deployment and you might have general ones for other things, giving them different rights, never mind the intellectual property theft with the more public facing ones. And how do you control that? Is that a security function? Is that a different function within the organization? So with all those things, I want to have hand you that heavy egg and let you unpack it whichever way you want. I guess I'll start initially with the the available large language models that we've got on the internet at the moment. You know, really specifically, whatever um, Bing has, Bard now for Google, and you know, ChatGPT. The way that we look at these, or at least try to look at these, in industry is that ultimately you can't. For the public-based ones, you can't trust that as a resource of something to keep your uh, information secure. The The way that I've always approached it is that you need to treat that the same way that you're treating a search engine. You're not going to put your source code into a search engine. and You're not going to put your uh, private data into a search engine. So just don't put it in an AI model. And for the most part, you should be okay. Where things, if it comes across as being business critical or private, don't use it for that. I mean, ultimately that tends to be the, the guidance. But it is very interesting because obviously ChatGPT came out in what, like December last year and then really kicked off in like January and then it was absolutely everywhere. That is, it has definitely been uh, revolution rather than evolution in, in regards to the uh, uptick of the usage of uh, of large language models and, and AIs like uh, ChatGPT. And it's given us quite a bit more of a headache, realistically, as defenders. And then at the same time, I'll talk about the, the good things that are coming, but at the same time, there's a lot of bad. So Threat actors can obviously go and adapt these technology changes a lot quicker than the defenders of, of those because they don't have to go through the supplier onboarding process and legal checks and what have you. So all of a sudden, the level of sophistication for things like phishing and SMS and whatnot have become incredibly more uh, sophisticated, where there were obvious outliers of what a particular message or instruction might contain. And you'll have the typical misspellings or not really understanding the actual structure of a sentence correctly, where you know that, that that's just the obvious call sign, regardless of what the two that the send from field says. Now that's obviously been maturing a lot because they can just take advantage of these particular models and then build out and get it automatically translated and push their particular things out. And that's been to the point where threat actors uh, have gone and developed their own also large language models to help them either develop malware or fish or even do uh, love scams where you'll get in contact with somebody on like Tinder or whatever else and then you just feed the information right back into that large language model to scan them out of money. And if that will be the objective and it will just automatically go and do that. On the other side of that, though, we are using uh, AI for a lot more good to sort of respond to that. It's, it's an element where it's an arms race, where you need AI to defend yourself against AI. So as you are, uh, as we are seeing this increase in like particular phishing emails and, and whatnot 
now all of a sudden large language models are being used to evaluate whether or not those are the, the sentencing and the structures are an indication of a high pressure. I must get this thing done now. And then evaluating of the, who sent this email, how many times have we seen it? Is this an impersonation of somebody and whatever else to score that to then determine whether or not that is a particular kind of threat? And that is already paying dividends in multiple different organizations. And then we've also got things like the Office 365 and then the GitHub and then the security co-pilot that is being slowly rolled out by either Microsoft and different organizations. Those are providing various different levels of like capabilities for defenders that we didn't have before. Confiscation of code, for example. So, you know, if we would get hit a phishing website and we know there's a payload on it or something like that, they would normally hide a lot of their code behind, you know, like weird shortened JavaScript or functions. You can pump that stuff right into a large language model, particularly that understands coding. And it will be like, oh, no, it just needs this secret key and this reference and then you're done. So it's, it's, it's provided a lot of additional capabilities for us to be able to just provide some of that pr protection to the organization and has automated an enormous amount of some of the initial investigation stuff just by not having somebody having to slowly rip to pieces a piece of javascript to understand how we can extract this particular piece of malware it's been fantastic but ultimately it's an arms race because what you're going to have is you're going to have then more code that's generated by ai which will try and obfuscate itself from being able to be detected and read by ai and then we'll get the next one and it's going to be ai all the way down but that's the only way that we can do it because ai is an automation solution at the end of the day it's automating a particular task or a process or whatnot and our threat actors are going to be using those particular types of technologies. And we have to use those as well just to be able to keep up because the deluge is just going to get bigger and bigger. If we look at what you just shared, and I sort of visualize a lot of the comments you made as an organization with the status quo, both on attack vectors and on the sort of reactions to those attacks, you've commented on where AI plays that. Now, I want to shift to another type of use of AI, which is the architecture of development. And, you know, we talked earlier about DevSecOps where, you know, you have to include the security flow into that DevOps role. I'm wondering if there's now a Dev AI SecOps of sorts where you now have to consider the role that maybe a specific LLM might play relative to a more general one that is part of an overall solution. So for example, let's say you're a, a, a brand new startup and you're dealing with private data from real estate uh, on the one end, and that's private data that you don't want to have go to ChatGPT, but you do have a private open source LLM internally. But then there is an element that you do extract from an open AI type model because it references stuff on the internet. So now the product combines these two things as an output, and then there you go. That is what the startup is doing, right? And so I'm just trying to think of what does the future organization look like? What is the, the challenges that you see? Is there a new role that's going to arise, CISO.ai, that manages this? What, what do you think the evolution will be of how organizations think about compartmentalization of data, how AI systems within the organization can talk to each other? I actually don't know, 
to be perfectly honest. It is one of those things where the absolute pace of innovation within this particular field is extraordinary. And where these particular solutions are going to fit within organizations or the way that we're going to either begin using specialized or general ones or whatever else and how that's going to fit within the workflow is... I honestly don't know. It's very difficult to say. And it's one of those things where I will have to yield my time on that particular area because I see it from, you know, my area of detection and threats and then the on what on the attackers have. And obviously I see it from the fact that, you know, there are tools like Hub Copilot that are help building out those particular elements. And obviously I'm aware of that, the way that you can define and build other large language models. But how that is working in an organization at a slightly grander scale, I still think that a lot of that stuff is in flux at the moment. And one of my biggest worries, I feel, particularly when we're dealing with AI, is that we're going to get AI that is eating other and ingesting and understanding other AI content to the fact that we might end up with exclusive, you know, humanly vetted, this is a human response kind of thing, because of the fact that when you go out onto the internet to ingest these particular resources validating the source of what it is and i guess it's sort of related to the fake news and stuff that was that was around before where like validating that this is a, a genuine thing created by an actual genuine person this is the official source of truth of what that thing is is going to cause probably a large amount of problems in the future particularly as it is now being available to most people and you could easily run an ai model on your laptop now but for the broader question, though, I just don't know. I don't know where it's going at the moment. It's on a trajectory that is very exciting. But where that lands, I, I don't have a clue. All right. Well, just to wrap things up, I have two non-controversial but quick fire questions to ask you. So the first one is, what are the most effective habits organizations can implement early from a cybersecurity point of view? It's it just one. You can just pick one. What is the most effective cybersecurity habit an organization can start early? So uh, it is definitely asset management. If you understand what you have and where it is, how it's licensed, who's allowed it, who's the owner, and whatever else, every single problem that you will encounter in the future can be built upon that source of truth. So if you have everything, if you understand exactly what you've got and what everything's allowed to talk to and who owns what, and then you maintain that, everything else will come into place. Nice. Should CEOs get a certification like a CISSP to be allowed to operate data companies in the future? I don't think so. The amount of incredible talent that is out there who don't have any form of certification is, is tremendous. The fact that the resources out there and available to people can provide you with an enormous amount of information about security best practices without having to go through any kind of official formal certification process like the CISP. Ultimately, it's one of those where as long as you've got somebody who is inquisitive and then security is about managing risk at the end of the day. So making sure that they are aware that that security element is a risk to the business and what risks it could pose, then 
I feel like that's probably normally enough for a CEO to be able to handle. I don't think they need anything more than that. Nice. And then last question is, what movie or book, dystopian or utopian, do you think the world's going to look like 10 years from now? Oh, when all of that metaverse stuff was going on, you could have definitely said it was Ready Player One, but I don't see it being like that anymore. I'm not sure. At the same time, it could be a 1984 element, to be honest. Everything is slowly becoming slightly more authoritarian nowadays. So I'm going to lean towards that. But I am a pessimistic cybersecurity person, so I'm probably going to go that way. <laughs> I agree. The other one that I think it resembles a little bit right now is Snow Crash, which I think is always a, a, a fun fan favorite. But with that, Thomas, I wanted to thank you for your time. I know we went a little bit over, but it's always fun to get wrapped up into these chats. And I, I look forward to sharing your wisdom with the broader audience. And if people want to follow you, you're on LinkedIn. Are you on Twitter? X? Nah. <laughs> Threads. Just on LinkedIn. Just LinkedIn. Excellent, guys. Until next time. 